talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is driving the board. The federal government outlined its strategy in their phone speech yesterday. Good thing we spent over $600 million on an election for this. Oh! Here's oh. Scott Thompson! Oh, my. So, where does he get that? Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. Willer's going to on the board. Uh, Lisa Pulaski filling in for Diana Weeks today. Ted Michaels also in the newsroom. And Lisa Pulaski picking the tune today. Lisa, step up to the microphone. Tell us what you picked and why you did it, please. Well, it's uh, Glass Animals with I Don't Want to Talk, I Just Want to Dance. And I picked it because it's just a really catchy song. And I'm thinking rather than read the newscast, you'd rather be up there dancing in the booth, is what I, you're telling I, us. I'm do- I can do both. I mean, I can dance and, and read the news oh, at the same time. It's just- wow. <laughs> I believe there's a challenge coming here for Lisa's next newscast. You didn't say, you didn't say dance well, so I don't oh, yeah. have to do a good well, job. Well, radi- it is radio, so really, who cares? Uh, great choice. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Lisa. Uh, hope you have a great time. And join us, with, uh, join us around the roundtable uh, coming up at 440 uh, this afternoon. Afternoon. We would love to hear your aspects on the world news. Ted Michael's going to be joining, and uh, somebody's got to keep him in line. So uh, we'll talk to you then. We certainly know what British Columbia has gone through in the last week or so. Uh, now it appears that uh, the East Coast is going to be going through their own predicament and their own uh, set of storms, uh, basically at the same time, it appears. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist uh, with Global News and with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah i'm doing well I'm, I'm a little busier than i would normally be in the middle of november but uh yeah both coasts we're kind of stuck in the middle of uh, just a crazy weather pattern out there so you know i've heard some new terminology coming out of this anthony and it seems like whenever there's a big or a catastrophic storm or anything that there is similar to what we've seen in bc sometimes we hear these what's an atmospheric river yeah, that, that's definitely come up, and uh, it's the likes of the polar vortex as far as it being just unknown and, until it enters mainstream media and, and just spreads uh, like wildfire, as you'd say. But uh, atmospheric rivers have been around for, for a very long time. Uh, they're nothing new, but uh, what they are are, are basically corridors or, or rivers in the sky of very high moisture content, a lot of water vapor. Now, these occur at any given time. There are about four or five of them around the planet. And most of the time, they're out over the oceans, not really impacting any land masses. It's when they start to move towards, say, B.C. or Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, like we've seen last night and today, uh, that they encounter terrain and, and, in some cases, pretty high mountaintops. And all of that wrings out the moisture. Those, those atmospheric rivers turn into actual rivers and, and flooding can occur uh, as as we see as we've seen over the last couple of weeks obviously uh two coasts two oceans and especially in the on the west coast uh, lots of mountain ranges lots of rocks lots of valleys how does that play into all of this because it seems that these systems just follow those 
Yeah, yeah. So what, what's happening is anytime you get uh, you get a, a river, an atmospheric river that basically encounters a landmass with these big mountains like you have in the Rockies, and actually across southwest Newfoundland you have fairly high peaks as well. Yeah. They almost they just rake the atmosphere. Uh, as they they become this block. So as the air goes up and over, uh, water vapor turns into just clouds and rain, and all of that has to flow with gravity down towards the ocean. So that's what we've seen, and it's most effective when it's perpendicular, and that has been the case, often is, on the West Coast, but it, it, it more rarely so for, for Cape Breton and southwestern Newfoundland, which they've seen for a couple of days now. All right, let's start on the West Coast. Uh, obviously, got ba- uh, hit with a storm uh, earlier on in the week, last weekend, and now they're starting to recover. Then they're saying that there's a couple on the horizon. The first one maybe not so bad, but certainly the second one is. So what what can you tell us about what's coming for them? Yeah, they're, they're definitely going to be seeing a lot of rain in the next uh, week or two and, and possibly well into the month of December. So uh, they've been lucky. In the last week, there hasn't been a massive storm to, to make the rescue efforts worse and, and the cleanup that's now well underway. But any significant rain is a problem. And this first uh, atmospheric river, as they call it, Pineapple Express, others call it out on the West Coast, uh, is going to be mostly impacting central BC, an area that hasn't been hit that hard yet. So that's the good news if there is any but that front's going to come through the south coast, the uh, Fraser Valley, Abbotsford, Hope, some of the areas that saw so much rain and flooding. They're going to get another round. But this is your more typical late November storm. And if if there hadn't have been the flooding early last week, it wouldn't be making quite the same headlines. I am concerned. You mentioned wave two, wave three, Saturday into Sunday, Tuesday. There There are more potent storms behind and the ground is just so saturated out west from all the rain that it's going to cause more mudslides and and likely some some additional flooding uh, for those areas that were hardest hit. And obviously, with the Fraser Valley, with it, you know, parts of it uh, at once a, a a lake bed that had been drained. It's not a case of of that even draining. It's they've got to pump that water out, which obviously takes more time. Yeah, and the pumps have, have definitely been at, at full capacity, those that are left over the last couple of days. So there's just a question, okay, how long are these pumps that have, have maybe already uh, passed their normal life expectancy uh, going to continue to, to, to help and pump all that water out? And then, of course, you have the, the river dikes and the lake bed dikes that, that have been breached and that are now temporarily being repaired temporarily the big term here because okay what if you get more flooding rains what happens to those those temporary repairs so uh, there's still a lot of questions and and i wish it was a better pattern for them but but there is uh, another month's worth of rainfall coming in the next week or so all right let's move to the east coast now anthony what's going on there and how similar is it to what's happening in bc well i sent a tweet out yesterday just showing the extent of this stream of moisture that extended from Greenland to the north and then all the way down to the Cayman Islands uh, to the south. So that is a tropical connection that's just bringing all this moisture into an area that doesn't normally see it. And as it gets into some colder air, uh, it can fall as snow, which is the case today in Nova Scotia. But really, it's the warm, the rain side that we're seeing uh, Cape Breton and Newfoundland and parts of the Trans-Canada Highway have been completely washed out. Not in B.C. this time, but in Newfoundland, and that is a major corridor for not just people, but goods to get around to 
the more populated areas like like on the Avalon Peninsula. So what's it like for them for the next few days? Well, there, there's still some rain. The worst of it is wrapping up as we speak. So I'm looking at the radars. There's still a few uh, bands that are pushing into mostly Newfoundland. And then this this pinwheels back into much of Nova Scotia. So they're going to get more rain tonight, tomorrow, which is going to uh, limit how fast those rivers go down. But uh, it's a wet pattern on both coasts, what I think, for the for the next week to 10 days. So we, we may not be done talking about the east uh, as well with this setup. All right, I know you got to run and you're busy. What does this mean for us in the middle, uh, southern Ontario and the Hamilton area for this weekend? Well, it's, I mean, count your, your blessings that we are uh, not surrounded by ocean water that has been running several degrees above normal, perhaps thanks to climate change. So uh, we, of course, have more of a muted climate here lately, and uh, we are waiting for uh, the first real blast of winter. We get a taste on Friday. It starts to relax this weekend as it warms up slightly, uh, but I still see some cold and perhaps our first snowstorm by late next week. All right, Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Make sure you're watching uh, watching Anthony tonight for more on all of this. Anthony, thanks so much for the time. I know you're busy. Be well. Thanks for having me on. We'll talk again soon. You know, uh, in case you've forgotten, Hamilton was on a tear prior to a global pandemic uh, and exploding at the seams. And then we all know what happened um, about, I don't know, 88, 89 weeks ago now. And things have changed, but um, you know what? We're getting slowly back to whatever the new normal is. Hamilton has officially crossed the $2 billion mark as it relates to the value of construction permits issued uh, this year. Uh, that's about uh, 59% residential, 39% commercial. To talk more about all of this, uh, Jason Thorne is with us, General Manager, Planning and Economic Development, and the Director of the City of Hamilton's Emergency Operations Center. He is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks very much for having me on your show, Scott. So, Jason, I'm guessing you're pretty happy to be coming on and talking about economic development as opposed to the Emergency Operations Center. That's a good sign. <laughs> it is a good sign. We, we have a lot to celebrate today from an economic development standpoint. So it's it's nice to take a pause from the emergency operations role and, and take a moment to celebrate for sure. That being said, since we have you on the line, we have to ask you, how is it uh, at this stage of this pandemic in the Emergency Operations Center? Obviously, the kids are in the process of being vaccinated or will so very soon. Uh, What is the challenge at this point of this pandemic? So at this point, it's great to see that we now have the vaccinations available for some of the the younger kids. That's That's a big positive move this week. Um, what we're starting to see now is it's sort of that um, phased and controlled reopening of services, reopening of businesses. Uh, we at the city as well are starting to bring some of our start staff back into the workplace, uh, you know, for the first time in almost two years. Um, so it's that gradual and cautious kind of reopening that is what we're focused on right now at the Emergency Operations Center. And uh, I guess the fact that so many have uh, already been vaccinated and there's still more that, that's uh, hopefully lining up to do so, uh, we've got enough tools in the toolbox now to move forward. We do. That, that, that vaccination rate has been absolutely critical to being able to reopen, uh, reopen businesses, reopen services, and even in workplaces, uh, including the city's own workplaces, having those high vaccination rates amongst our employees is what makes that possible. All right, let's talk about economic development. I think uh, I may have had your predecessor on or even you talking about when we hit $1 billion way back when. Uh, how significant is the $2 billion mark? 
Two billion, two billion is huge. Yeah, it was probably maybe a decade ago we first passed that billion dollar mark for the first time in our history, um, and this is the first time in our history we've ever gone past two billion. And uh, and it's a bit of a leap. I mean, our our best year ever prior to this was about one point five. So the construction activity that our city has seen in twenty twenty one is is just absolutely extraordinary. So obviously, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Hamilton was on a tear prior to the uh, to the pandemic and such, and, and things were looking really rosy. We had turned the corner, per se. Uh, how much of this has to do with the pandemic and, and and your thoughts on where people are now? There's a little bit of it that might be some pent-up demand or maybe a couple of deferred projects from 2020. Uh, we saw a little bit of a dip in 2020, but really actually not that too much. Beginning of the year was a bit slow in 2020, but towards the end, uh, we were pretty much backfiring on all cylinders, and that has just uh, maintained itself all through 2021. And, and I think the really exciting thing about the activity we're seeing is it's not just one type of development. Um, you know, in the, in the past few years, our, our growth are, has really been dominated by residential, mm. and we still see a really strong residential market. Um, but getting close to half of that activity right now is industrial. Um, and that's unheard of. Uh, those are those are extraordinary numbers for for industrial. Um, we're, we're not going to be that far off by the end of the year. We would actually won't be that far off hitting a, a billion dollars just on the industrial side, which is, which wow. is unprecedented. Wow, that's that's amazing considering where we were a decade ago. So um, that being said, you said this was still a, quite a, a massive jump this year. How do you explain that? So I think it's just a, a signal of, of how. Strong, the Hamilton market is, and again, across the board, very strong residential. We've been seeing that for a couple of years. Um, we're still seeing a lot of in-migration coming out of other parts of the GTA uh, and really bolstering our housing market. Um, definitely, Hamilton is being seen as a, a very attractive place where people want to live. Um, and so that residential has continued to grow. Uh, and then what's really sort of new now is this, is this booming industrial component. Um, and that's being driven, again, by a number of different sectors. It's not just one sector that's, that's driving that. We're seeing, you know, logistics, warehouse kind of stuff around the airport. Um, but we've got a big new packaging plant in the city. We've got um, uh, the L3 Westcam project up in Waterdown, one of the probably the biggest new employer to come to our city ever. Um, and that's a lot of sort of office, tech, uh, advanced manufacturing type positions. So, even on the industrial side, we're seeing a really great diversity of the type of businesses that are choosing to locate here. And then we've got a bunch of our existing businesses who are, who, who are expanding and also adding to that. What does it say and how does it inspire other businesses to see this growth on the industrial side? Because we certainly are starting to hear now outside of our, our boundaries that, that Hamilton is the place to be. Yes. And we, we've been hearing that for residential and we're really hearing that on the industrial side now it's, um, especially if we look at some of the sites around the airport, some of the sites in the uh, the business park up in uh, up in Waterdown, is once you have those first couple of big announcements, um, which we had maybe a year, year and a half ago, that really kind of puts you on the map. Um, and then next thing you know, you have a lot of the other uh, developers, uh, real estate groups coming and looking at our our industrial market. Um, and certainly, the airport's a big draw. The connectivity of Hamilton to the rest of the region is is a big draw. Um, and uh, and those lands right now, industrial lands, are about, you know, everybody talks about the residential market, but industrial lands are actually one of the hottest things around right now. And that helps keep the residential tax base down, doesn't it? It does. That's a, That's been a big goal of ours in economic development. It's certainly been a big uh, goal of council is to sort of 
um, tilt a bit of that tax base back towards the industrial, the commercial. Um, and this is a big part of that. And, you know, and also, of course, you know, the jobs it brings and the way we want to grow as a city is, is not as people who are living in Hamilton and having to commute all over the region to get to yeah. their jobs. We want to capture the job market as well so that people can live here and they can work here. Um, and that's what's really exciting about this sort of dual growth now we're seeing in both the residential and the industrial side. Jason Thorne with us, General Manager, Planning and Economic Development and Director of the City of Hamilton's Emergency Operations Center. We're healthy, whether it comes to us all personally and our own health and even financially, as Hamilton has officially crossed the $2 billion mark in the value of construction permits issued this year. Jason, thanks for the time. Congratulations to everybody at the city. Great work. Thank you very much. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Just uh, some bizarre news breaking, uh, and I actually watched this uh, just prior to the show starting, and the live coverage of the judge uh, in uh, Satilla Shores, Georgia, reading the verdict out of the three men who were accused of killing Ahmad Arbery. Uh, while he was out uh, jogging. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the footage of this, but uh, it's certainly uh, been in the news a lot of late and has uh, wound up in a U.S. court. And Travis McMichael was found guilty on all counts. His father, Gregory uh, McMichael, found guilty on all counts but malice murder. Uh, William Rody Bryan was kill, uh, was uh, g- uh, guilty of felony murder and a slew of other charges included, this is all of them, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, criminal attempt to commit a felony. Uh, the jury deliberated for 10 hours before coming up with the verdict. And uh, the accused, uh, their lawyers argued that the uh, three white men acted in self-defense as Arbery lunged at their drawn weapons before they shot and killed him. Uh, the prosecution argued that the three men provoked, intimidated, and threatened Arbery before they eventually killed him. The trial was overseen by a mostly white jury with only one of the 12 jurors being black. The defense had 11 of the 12 potential black jurors removed prior to uh, the hearing. So just a, uh, a bizarre turn of events. In, and, and finally, many will say justice being served after we saw what happened with Kyle uh, Rittenhouse. And again, just another bizarre gun story out of the United States. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating. It was fascinating to watch these men uh, um, humbled that they're actually going to prison for what they did. And fascinating watching uh, uh, the one that was pretty much the instigator in all of this being questioned in the past by uh, by the prosecution saying, were you threatened? No. Did you ever see a weapon? No. I mean, it, it was just... It was bizarre to even watch. Uh, that being said, Reggie Giacchini, our Washington reporter, uh, was on with Jeff MacArthur earlier today. And I want to play some clips. This is Reggie explaining more about this uh, verdict. This verdict uh, has kind of been hotly anticipated, not only in Brunswick, Georgia, but really across the country, especially in the wake of what we saw uh, in the last trial, uh, that being of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, in this verdict, though, uh, when you heard that verdict uh, come down of guilty against Travis McMichael, he was the man who ultimately pulled the trigger and shot uh, Ahmad Arbery in 2020. That charge 
was of malice murder. Uh, he was also found guilty on eight other charges. The two other men that were a part of this trial as well, uh, Greg McMichael, Travis's father, he was found guilty on eight of nine charges, not guilty of malice murder. And then there was William Roddy Bryan. He was the man who took the video of Ahmad Arbery's final few moments of life. He was found guilty of felony murder, found guilty on charges of aggravated assault, but he wasn't found guilty on uh, on charges of malice murder. So ultimately, these three men do face uh, sentences of life in prison. And as you heard there, uh, that kind of audible gasp from members of the Arbery family, uh, who, who ultimately feel that they are now starting to see justice following the death of, of their child, brother and son. Uh, this is Reggie on the central focus and the defense strategy here. The defense really tried to paint this as a citizen's arrest uh, and that the death of Ahmad Arbery was justified. They pushed that he was uh, a gentleman who was, uh, you know, uh, potentially a burglar. That's what these uh, these three people thought he was a burglar. Uh, and they saw him running through the neighborhood, uh, fearing that he might have been linked to an uptick in crime across uh, this this predominantly white neighborhood in Georgia. And, and what the prosecution pushed back on was there was no crime that was committed. Uh, citizens' arrests didn't need to happen because none of these people saw an actual crime. Uh, and the prosecution really tried to say, look, race is at the center of this trial in that they saw a black man running down the street. And ultimately, that was the reason that they tried to stop him and ultimately ended up killing him. So it was another case of self-defense that kind of put this country, you know, drawing it down the divides uh, of racial injustices in this country. Uh, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, when, when you see this verdict come down, uh, that's a verdict that, that many people were looking for. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a step forward for this country. And that's Reggie Giacchini, a Washington reporter with Global News, talking about the case today and the verdict. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, video does not lie. And, um, and, the, and the bizarre part, it was their video that incriminated them. And uh, they seem to be as surprised as anyone, which just makes you more... Just want to shake your head even more. David Suzuki, uh, over the weekend, uh, last weekend, uh, said some pretty controversial things, uh, very much on the fringes and on the extremes. We've talked a lot at this show, on this show, about how, uh, this discussion seems to be played out on the extremes when the solution is in the middle. Uh, and basically what David Suzuki said was, we're in deep, deep doo-doo. Uh, this was Saturday at an Extinction Rebellion protest on Vancouver Island. Quote, this is what we've come to the next stage after this they're going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what is going on now he later reiterated all of this and said that uh it wasn't a threat at all it was uh it was just a warning uh that being said tasha garrigan uh, kerrigan of the national post david suzuki's blown up pipelines comment is a winking incitement to eco-terrorism and she is with us now, principal at Navigator and lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University. Tasha Carradine is with us now. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, doing doing better than David Suzuki right now, I think. So yeah. You know, that being said, how much attention has this received? Because again, uh, and, and and you draw this comparison, I believe, if this had been Donald Trump saying something like this, people would be drawing comparisons to January 6th. So um, why? What what is going on here? Well, it's got a lot of attention, actually. I know that the National Post um, also put it on the front page today in terms of my column, and I've gotten uh, it's almost 300 comments now on it, uh, which is a lot usually for for the columns. So, and people have been emailing too, and there's a lot of social attention, and not just me, but other, you know, the Alberta legislature weighed in, and other groups weighed in. So people people are paying attention. I think well, one because David Suzuki is so well known, 
So anything he does or says, people will pay attention to. But second, I think because there's a sense that, you know, um, people on the right, as you point out, when they say things that are inflammatory, get called out for it. And rightly so. You shouldn't say anything that could incite someone or encourage someone to do something violent. And on the left, it sort of sometimes gets a pass. Um, you know, it's seen to be done here, like, for the greater good. It's for the ecological future of our world and this kind of thing. But the reality is that there are people who, you know, the Unabomber is a perfect example. Uh, there's been eco-terrorists in the past who have killed and hurt people in their efforts to preserve the planet. And we don't want any of that either. So I think David Suzuki should have been more uh, circumspect with his language. And um, a lot of other people seem to agree. How much blowback here? I mean, what does this do for his credibility? Again, well, he said he said it wasn't a threat, it was a warning. What does that mean? Well, and he also said that, you know, he doesn't condone this. Of course, I, I wouldn't expect him to condone it. It's more that when you say that, it's, um, you know, the wrong person can take that as well. Politicians aren't listening. So David Suzuki, who's an icon, is saying this, I, maybe I should do something about it. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who might be slightly unhinged and, and might do something you never know and so you got to be more careful and he um he's been his own foundation sort of just you know walked away from this this and had a long twitter thread saying that you know they he they disassociated himself from the words and said he speaks on his own behalf and not on us so he was wearing their clothing their jacket at the time so i think they they got nervous too because donors might say well we don't you know we, we might not feel comfortable with with that kind of language too so uh, there's been blowback from from people also in his circle, like I said, um, but mostly on the other side and, and definitely also from people who say, look, the fossil fuel industry gets demonized a lot. Yes, it's caused a lot of issues, but we've got to find a way forward that's positive and, and not talk about blowing things up. Well, you know, uh, over and above the violence and, and, and suggesting violence of some sort uh, or alluding to it in some way, when we go to the extremes of this movement, it loses credibility. And everybody, like the, those that are on the fence, just look at this and say, ah, what the heck, it's another wacko talking about something in the extreme. And, and it does nothing for the overall movement. Yeah, and that's something, too, I think that, um, you know, none of us would would say that people and David Suzuki is a perfect example. He's fought all his life for protection of things that are important to him, including the environment, which is important to, to everybody. Um, but it's the way you do it because yes, people will stop listening to you or people will uh, distance themselves if they feel that you're, you're doing things that we can't take you seriously anymore. And so I said, it's like disappearing down the rabbit hole. I mean, David Suzuki also, and you know, I, I remember interviewing him 20 years ago, actually for a program that I was doing at the time for CPAC in Ottawa. And, Asked him about some of the more personal stuff, too, that the Toronto Sun later came out with, which is, you know, he's got five kids. He has four houses. Hmm. You talk about small ecological footprint. Are you walking the walk here? <laughs> You're talking the talk, but are you walking the walk? And he didn't like that at the time, and he still doesn't like it, I think, um, because it does raise a question of, you know, uh, you should practice what you preach. And if, if you've got, like he does, apparently a really large mansion in Vancouver and other properties, then are you really minimizing your footprint in the world when you're telling everyone else to. There's a bit of a disconnect. So there's that angle, too, I think a lot of people are sort of frustrated with him about. What does he need to do? Does he need to further address this? Does he, has to, does he have to make this right? What does he need to do moving forward? Well, I think, you know, he said that he didn't, he, he has confirmed, he said to the National Post, look, I don't, I don't believe in this. I'm not calling on this. And I, I do, I don't think he was. I think he was just, like I said, when he was with his words, he didn't, he said things that, could inflame people but he said that he's not um he doesn't he doesn't countenance this sort of thing so fine 
I think, though, what he could do is go forward and be more um, positive on this as opposed to always on the negative. And, and I know that, you know, most people in the ecological movement, I will say, maybe I'm generalizing, have very little love for oil companies or others. But the reality is that unless um, you engage industry in this uh, situation, you're not going to get the kind of results. You might get a lot of headlines. You might, it's easy to say like fossil, fossil fools and hold a big sign. But really the point is, you know, uh, it's not just the oil that is powering your car, everything, all the cell phone you're talking on, all these activists are talking on, it's made of, you know, polycarbonates and it's, <laughs> it's made from that oil. There's all sorts of stuff in the world that depends on fossil fuels. Until we have a way to replace that, you can't just turn off the tap. So engage positively, do give some credit where credit is due with companies that are making changes. And try to stop the demonization because, like you said, it doesn't serve anybody. Tasha Carradine with us, principal and navigator lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University. You can find her most recent column in the National Post. David Suzuki warning of people blowing up pipelines has been disavowed by even his own foundation. Uh, Tasha, thanks for the time. Great piece. Be well. Thank you. You too. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels, Lisa Pileski in the newsroom, making their way around the big round table. For the obvious discussion of the day, everyone's talking about it. It's the radio event of the day uh, to hear what the kids have to say about the uh, local issues of the day. Good afternoon to everybody. Hope you're all doing well around the big round table. Find it interesting you call me kid. You know, I'm older than you. You know, I just thought I'd throw that in. Figure of speech, I've been using Ah. it the the 37 years I've been in radio. (laughs) It's by emotional maturity for you and me, Ted, right? Oh, by the way, Ted, say hi to my wife. She's in the office printing something. Oh, hi, Eileen. I'm doing oh, no. well, Eileen. How are you? I'm good. What's the countdown at today? Uh, today, uh, 50, uh, 20 days. Oh, 20 my day. goodness. All 20 right. days. Eileen wants to come to the party. I do, Ted. What party? <laughs> I, I, the COVID I, party. What, yeah, I, I know nothing about a party. Neither do we. We were just hoping you did. Yeah. No, honest, we didn't spoil any surprise. We know nothing, Ted, honestly. No, I, I don't know uh, anything. All right, you want me to let you out of the tent? Yeah, oh, now my tent's falling down. She's come into the office now. The t- She's walking around like a ghost. She's got a giant mattress thing over top of her. She doesn't know how to put it back up under the doors. All right, enough of that. Oh, and the uh, dog's weighing in now. You all see? right, enough of that. Now, this is better than the old radio shows. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love I this. Know. She's taking time away from the big round table. That's all I know. All right. Poll question of the day. Let's start with that. Uh, people ignoring physical, uh, the question of the day, are you ignoring physical distancing over the holidays? In other words, going to open up the doors a bit more this holiday compared to last. 52% are saying no. Ted, what are your thoughts? We, um, I think we, we, we mentioned this earlier. Yeah, uh, it'll be lowest scale for us, but it'll certainly be more people than we had last year, which was just, just the two of us because of what was going on. So, yeah, it, it, we're, we'll be seeing more people, but not that many more, if that makes sense. So it'll be, you know, close family and, yeah. All right, Lisa, you staying away or are you keeping the physical distancing or bringing them in for the hug? Well, I mean, now that we've got the vaccine and everything, it's made everything much safer. Um, I'm definitely going to be seeing my brother and my sister-in-law and my two little nephews. Um, but I, we're still not seeing like the cousins and the aunts and yeah. uncles and things like that. So I think uh, I don't know when that's going to return because I do miss seeing my extended family. But I think it's just kind of we're still not at that point yet. Yeah, I think a lot of there. Will, your thoughts? 
Uh, yeah, I think ignoring is almost a, a, a harsh term. I think a lot of people are looking at it as, well, we're expanding. We're going to see some people, but we're not ignoring it altogether. I'm not going to run up and hug the person at the shopper's drug mart who's, you know, helping me with the robot machine or whatever. But hey, let uh, me ask this. Yeah. Is anybody using this as an excuse? Oh, still got the COVID. Oh, and, God, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can't be bothered. COVID, we're really, uh, maybe people out there telling them, uh, uh, relatives, oh, I'm not vaccinated. We're actually there are who knows all right uh one more stage back to the mall or shopping online are you comfy enough with the vaccine to go back into the mall ted nope uh we'll be doing a lot more online let's put it this way if i need something at the mall i'm gonna figure like i'm i'm not the type of person that walks around a mall for hour anyway it's gonna be uh get in know where i'm going if i have to go to the mall go in get it get out that's me mr in and out uh lisa well, I've actually been uh, trying to go to more of the uh, the local businesses and, uh, yeah. you know, going to those in person. I mean, I live downtown, so it's easy for me to kind of walk around. And I mean, Jackson Square is right there. I've been going into Jackson Square throughout the entire pandemic, so it's not really that different for me. Mm. Um, but I think I think a lot of people will still be doing online shopping, especially if there's still like the big Black Friday sales and things like that coming up. Um, you know, some things will not return as quickly. And I think uh, shopping in person is definitely been impacted by this will you're into the movie theater a lot are you going into the mall uh, i've gone to malls a couple times for those i've uh i've kind of speed run my way through the mall and tried to hold my breath the whole time but uh as lisa says the i've also been like going into more local businesses and shops i think we're at the point where i feel comfortable going into places and even somewhere like a mall but uh i'm still on my toes the whole time I'll use any excuse I can to stay out of them all, just saying, but that was uh, nothing to do with the pandemic. All right, let's move on, kids. Uh, David Suzuki, obviously uh, many known within the, uh, know him within the environmental movement, been around for years, warned over the weekend that politicians, uh, if they don't act to reverse climate change, there could be attacks against oil and gas infrastructure. The quote is, we're in deep, deep doo-doo. Uh, he said last Saturday, speaking at an extinction rebellion protest on Vancouver Island, quote, this is what we've come to the next stage after this they are going there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what is going on is this uh irresponsible extremism or is it an educated opinion what are your thoughts ted i think it's an educated opinion i have great respect for david suzuki and i can tell you this with a lot of people already protesting pipelines in various ways across the country um I, we really hope that that's not the case, but I sense somewhere down the road of politicians, as he says, don't start realizing soon and stop paying lip service to this, then unfortunately, he could be right. Does this encourage that activity, though? Very, you know, some have painted a picture, uh, same thing as Donald Trump, inciting people to do something January 6th. Is this encouraging people, suggesting ideas? Well, I'm I'm hoping that that's not the case, but you know that there are the fringe element in everything that we do in societies. And uh, let's put it this way. If something like that did happen for myself, I wouldn't be surprised. All right, Lisa, you want to wait on this? Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, I, I maybe his choice of words was not ideal, but I don't think it was necessarily, he's not trying to instigate anything. I think that's, you know, we do see people taking extreme action to his, to the extreme weather that we're seeing. Uh, the stories about all the flooding that's happening, there's a reason for that. I mean, it's climate change and it's, 
you know, human fueled. So he, he he's passionate about what he talks about and maybe he's not saying it the right way, but I, I don't think um, comparing him to Donald Trump is accurate <laughs> or fair. Uh, good one. Uh, okay, Will, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think it's a reminder for a lot of people because we're all kind of in that position now as we've, you know, over the years, we all have our, our mass media. We have our Twitter and our Facebook and everything else where we can communicate with people. It's a reminder of how careful you do have to be when you're communicating ideas. I don't think he was calling for anything. I think he really was trying to say, hey, let's be real. There's people out there who, as Lisa said and Ted said too, take things to extremes and we do not want that. Um, but I think he was speaking more off the cuff and it and it came out in a way that yeah, it, it could be it could be uh, taken as encouragement from some people, and we all have to be wary of how we phrase things when we're talking uh, on air or online or anywhere else in the world, really. You know, I think this has become a very political and very divisive issue, and it shouldn't be because climate change affects everybody. What's, yep. uh, what obviously the problem is, is people have different opinions on how to find the solution for it. And I really think the discussion needs to be brought into the center instead of the extremes. And to me, this, this statement, the next stage after this, there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what is going on is extreme irresponsibility in, in my view. Uh, you know, I think people look to this man for guidance. I think we know the extreme, uh, uh, the extremity of the issue. We know that how serious this issue is. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, going down that angle and even to mention it, I think is uh, incredibly irresponsible, no matter how passionate you are. But that's just my simple opinion. And of course, we've had quite a few of them around the big round table. And I thank you all, Lisa Pileski, Ted Michaels, Will Erskine, uh, for helping us out. All right. Uh, news coming up at the top of the hour. Who's taking this one, kids? Well, it, uh, yeah, no, Ted's back. You know back. what? It's because it, who wants to do it, Lisa well, or Ted? Only because I, I, I've been doing the other side. Never mind. You don't have to explain. No, Ted Michaels see? is here. Ted Michaels is a cast at the top <laughs> yes. of the hour. We are thinking, yes. although that could change yes. depending on on when the music ends and what chair is sitting in. That's right. When the music stops. <laughs> You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, one of the more fascinating things about doing a uh, a pandemic radio show for 88 weeks, uh, we're certainly not leading with it every day. It's not the prime subject of the show, although we obviously try to keep you up to date on what's going on. But one of the neat things we've done over the course of this is uh, touch base with various uh, polling and research firms across the country and they've been very actively gauging where our minds are what our concerns are and and how we move forward in this global pandemic and it's been fascinating to to see how you are are all feeling as we make our way through this global pandemic an interesting one from ipsos today uh sean simpson uh, vice president of ipsos public affairs is going to join us nearly four out of five canadians are either worried or very worried not about COVID, about rising inflation. Uh, it, this was conducted for Global News. Uh, Canada's inflation rate uh, hitting 4.7% in October, fastest pace in nearly uh, 19 years. And as a result, this has become a top concern for 78% of Canadians found this poll. And only about 6% said they weren't worried about the rising prices. Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos, is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing, doing well. I am. Thanks for asking. 
Sean, it's amazing how our attitudes have changed, and I guess this mean, doesn't mean that we're certainly not consider uh, and not concerned about COVID and, and moving forward with this pandemic, but we're certainly uh, looking at other aspects and fallout of this. Are you surprised by these numbers? Well, uh, a poll we released Monday uh, showed that uh, inflation and the cost of living is now the number one issue in Canada that uh, Canadians want their leaders to be focused on. So uh, given that result, it's perhaps not surprising that uh, 78% of Canadians uh, are concerned that inflation will make everyday things uh, less affordable for their family. And going a step further, and this is quite concerning to say the least, uh, 44% uh, are worried that they might not have enough money to feed their family, and that rises to 59% among households with with children. So that is uh, that, that's a stark finding uh, when you have so many parents uh, worried that because of price increases that they can't afford, they may not be able to put food on the table to feed their entire family. It's. Uh, are you surprised at all that we're talking about this now? Because uh, has this opinion changed since the election? Because the election, which wasn't that long ago, it didn't seem that that we were too concerned about inflation. It was more about pandemic response, I guess, and and yeah. continuing vaccination. But lots of opposition was screaming about inflation, and it didn't seem to matter. Yeah, well, during the election, so the big poll that we did for Global News on Election Day of over 11,000 voters uh, showed that uh, it was the number five issue for right. for voters. So just in, in a matter of two months, uh, it shot up from uh, fifth to to first place and and it's no 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 wonder why i mean when we ask canadians how easily they they feel that their household could absorb uh rising costs of food clothing transportation and shelter uh only 13 percent of households said yep no problem 35 percent said well with some adjustment we may be able to absorb those costs but that leaves the other half of canadians saying they either need to change uh, their their budget entirely to find a way to pay for those increased costs, uh, or, uh, and this is 24%, say, we're out of money. There is no way that we can pay more for household necessities. Uh, and that goes all the way up to 33% in the province of Alberta, which, of course, has been, I think, hardest hit over the last number of years with oil prices declining and, uh, and higher employment rates than in many other provinces. So does this, Sean, uh, suggest that Canadians couldn't see this coming, didn't uh, think that once things got traction, it would take off like this? Well, maybe the government didn't. Uh, I mean, but it, it was the perfect recipe uh, for this, because uh, for the last number of years, we've had rock bottom interest rates, while at the same time, government is is just, you know, essentially printing money by, by uh, you know, injecting the economy with uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of stimulus spending and, and COVID supports. Um, when the economy finally is getting back on its feet, as it has been the last number of months, it's no wonder that inflation is, is so high. Now, the tonic, of course, is to either raise interest rates, which makes people's debt more unaffordable. So that's a concern, probably won't be very popular. And then the other uh, uh, tonic is, is uh, restrained uh, fiscal policy, which is cutting back on all of those things that, you're spent, that the government is spending money on. And that's probably uh, comes as, as reduced COVID support. And of course, that's not going to be very popular either. So uh, Justin Trudeau and, and, and the Bank of Canada are kind of between a rock and a hard place here because any solution to this problem is going to necessitate pain. And that will slow down the economy, but that's going to hurt some households as well.
Uh, how do you think this is going to affect the politics of the day? We obviously have a minority government, and no one seems to want an election. Yeah, well, clearly uh, the, the government is going to need to be focused on pocketbook issues. You know, it's not that climate change isn't important to Canadians. It's just that, uh, you know, what what hits you in your pocket hits you most. Um, and, and so Canadians are, are really fixated on, on finding some relief, uh, whether it's at the grocery store or at the, uh, at the gas pumps. Uh, the opposition parties are going to hold the government's feet to the fire. I don't think the prime minister is going to be terribly popular if if he, um, you know, tightens the purse strings of the federal government or if the Bank of Canada starts to increase inflation er, interest rates too quickly. So he's going to have to come out with some uh, fairly popular policies if he can. Maybe it's a reduction in taxes. Who knows? But uh, that's not really where uh, this government's strength lies. Sean Simpson with us, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Uh, nearly four out of five Canadians either worried or very worried about rising inflation, says an Ipsos poll. Uh, fascinating discussion with Sean Simpson of Ipsos just before the news uh, and saying that uh, almost 80 percent, 79 percent of Canadians, their biggest concern right now is inflation. Yet, when we were asked during the election campaign, no Canadian gave a really rat's rear end about inflation. And as a matter of fact, on the polling of the day of the election, inflation was at number five. And we were told this was coming when the economy kicked in. We were told that things were going to start to take off. Uh, yet, in, during the election, we didn't care about inflation. And now it's the number one issue. Gone from number five to number one. So who's to blame for this? The prime minister or Canadians? Because it's not like we weren't told. We just chose to kind of ignore it. And now we are where we are and everything has come home to roost. Uh, interesting discussion. We'll talk about that coming up, uh, obviously, in the days to come. All right, another issue going on down at City Hall. I want to bring in Ken Mann, uh, of course, City Hall reporter with us here at Global News 900 CHML. And there's an interesting issue going on. We certainly know the child care uh, debate and discussion that is going on across the country. Uh, the Prime Minister has uh, said that he is going to inject money across the provinces to come up with a $10 a day daycare day plan. All the provinces have signed on except Quebec and Ontario, which are the two biggest provinces. And uh, Ken's been covering this issue. Ken, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. I think my question here, Ken, is the last time there was a news conference, I remember both the education minister and the, the uh, premier, Doug Ford and uh, Stephen Lecce, both saying there will be a deal. We are going to do this. We're just waiting for or we're just trying to negotiate the best deal because they're one of the bigger provinces. So we do know a deal is coming. Why is city council or some members of trying to go in this direction? Well, uh, keep in mind, really, Scott, there are two parts to this motion, right? The first part is urging the province to get this done and to finalize the deal with the federal government. Uh, the the city um, motioning to have staff or requesting staff to look at the feasibility of a direct agreement with the federal government over child care, that's really kind of plan B in their mind, right? In case the province doesn't get this done, 
to say, um, you know, if this doesn't happen, is there some way that we can take advantage of this opportunity ourselves by going directly to the federal government to come up with a plan? But really, their first their first uh, plan, their first wish is that the province does, in fact, get this done. Are they paying the same sort of attention to the province? Are they having the same discussions with that province? Well, the the motion that was approved by City Council today directly urges uh, the the provincial government, and it is a, a letter to the provincial government to um, get this agreement finalized. So yes, they are they are having these discussions with the province as well. Uh, again, is this uh, action? In, well, I'm asking you for your opinion, and you can't do it here because I'm asking because you're a city hall reporter. But it seems to me this is more about uh, the politics for something that is already coming. You're sort of asking the government to get something done quicker as opposed to done better. They've already said they're going to do it. They're just waiting for a better deal. I'm not sure, you know, uh, you, you, what the commotion is about, other than to draw attention that you're going to bypass the government. Am I Am I naive there? Am I missing the point? Well, it's hard to say. I I really think maybe it has more to do with the fact that a lot of these councillors have been around a long time. They've dealt with a lot of different provincial governments, and they've seen promises, some of them come to fruition, and others not over the course of time. So Mm -hmm. I I sense there's always going to be a certain amount of skepticism that the, the provincial government is going to get this uh, deal done, and particularly if it's councillors who may not be on the 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 right end of the political spectrum, so to speak. If if they're on the other end, they may be more skeptical than others to uh, think that the Ford government's actually going to come through on this. So I, I mean, I think that may have as much to do with it. As anything, but you're right. Uh, it, that's uh, that's an opinion. You're kind of asking me what I what I think, and and that probably has something to do with it. And plus, there is an election coming, so uh, I'm sure the grocery list will come out in due time. And if if this is going to be on it, it will be. Uh, anyway, Ken Mann with us, reporter for Global News, covering City Hall, Global News Radio 900 CHML. Ken, as always, thanks for the time and get the margarita, get the blender going. <laughs> Always my uh, pleasure, Scott. And hey, back to that inflation issue you were talking about a little bit. Was the issue so much that Canadians didn't care about it during the election campaign, or they didn't think any of the parties had a plan to do anything about it? Oh, there you go. A shot across the bow the other side. Very good point, Ken Mann. Thank you so much. Feel free to join us anytime. And there's always an alternate table at the round table for you if you ever want to make an appearance. I'll be in soon enough. All right. Thanks, Ken. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right. Remember, we were telling you a few weeks ago about a Hamilton connection to a Sims swap a cryptocurrency crime. I think it was like $42 million and somebody in the United States, the FBI involved in this. And then all of a sudden there's a Hamilton connection. Well, now uh, the target of the theft has been revealed. It's Josh Jones. He's a pioneer of Bitcoin investing going back all the way to 2010. Now, as far as the Hamilton connection, we don't know a lot more there because they're protected through the Young Offenders Act. Uh, under the age of 18, 17 years of age. So let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst, and with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, good to be here, Scott. Thanks. So first of all, tell us about this victim. I understand he's been doing this for quite a while, but all of this was accessible through his phone? 
Yeah, it's uh, and it's. I think it's a reminder to all of us that our phones are kind of like the weak link of all of our security plans. His name is Josh Jones, uh, and as you said, he's been buying into Bitcoin since the early days for over a decade, and not just buying into it, but he, you know, he's proud of the fact, and he's very well known in the community, very notorious um, as just sort of this goofy guy who thinks differently than everyone else and always seems to place the right bets when everyone else is telling him run away. He's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be the guy who invests. And, uh, obviously he's made a huge amount of money. No one's really confirmed exactly how much, but billionaire has been thrown around quite frequently. Um, and, uh, and more than that, he has devoted himself to helping others uh, learn the, 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 the wonders of cryptocurrency to help them invest in Bitcoin. Um, so he's really been central in the cryptocurrency community for over a decade. And um, this isn't his first go around. He was part of about uh, seven years ago, the Mt. Gox exchange, cryptocurrency exchange was hacked for close to half a billion dollars. And he was one of the victims then as well. So He's, he's now been victimized in the largest individual uh, crime involving cryptocurrency, and he was also victimized in the largest collective crime involving cryptocurrency. Yet he's, he's still buying mansions, buying airlines, uh, you know, you know, investing in other startups. Uh, he's not letting it stop him, and clearly this has not tapped him out. How can you be such a brainiac when it comes to Bitcoin and then lose it when it comes to simple security here? And how much advice do you want to take from them? Perhaps when it comes to investing in Bitcoin, but certainly not for protecting yourself. It's a really good point. And I think, you know, this particular case, again, we haven't seen all of the details on it. None of this has been proven in court. But from what we've heard, it was a SIM swapping or SIM jacking uh, attack where Whoever the attacker was was able to get that into you know pretend to be that individual, call that individual, call the victim's uh, phone company, and get their phone redirected to another SIM card. Uh, and of course, because uh, the victim apparently used his his, his in this case his uh, phone as as the you know if you forgot your password, send a text to this number, which most of us do. Uh, that was the soft underbelly of his security plan. And I think, you know, you're right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take advice from him on security, absolutely, because clearly he was victimized. But I think it's a reminder to us that you can be a billionaire. You can be one of the top highest flyers in the tech community and get, yes, guess what? You too can be victimized. We all can. And the ability for a 17-year-older at the time, this kid would have been 16, hacker to go after you, it really doesn't take much to make a victim of anybody, no matter who you might happen to be. So talk about that, Carmi. I mean, how surprised were you when you found out the guy's name couldn't be released because of the Young Offenders uh, Act? <laughs> I, I mean, what? How do you how do you prosecute a kid? Well, I mean, you know, it's been done before. I think back to Mafia Boy. You know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the first high-profile uh, cyber criminal of the cybercrime age, and he was Canadian. I've met him in person. Nicest kid. Now he's a, you know, he's a fully grown and security expert, high in high demand for obvious reasons. Kind of like the Canadian version of uh, of Kevin Mitnick. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's really how it works. Is when you're young, you don't think of what you can't do. You're just, and I think back to when I was a kid playing with my first computers, the world was my oyster. And so what, what is often the case in the cybercrime community is some of the most prolific criminals are, in fact, really young because they don't know any different. And they're willing to take chances and they're willing to experiment in ways that perhaps older cybercriminals might not be. 
So, Carmi, will he go to jail, or will he get a really good job out of this? Uh, I think uh, possibly a bit of both. I think, uh, you know, assuming that the, the case against him is proven, and again, still hasn't gone to court, still hasn't been tested, but um, obviously prosecutors involved in this are going to want to make an example of this individual, as they always do. It's one of the highest-profile cybercrime cases in Canada in recent years. Um, so it will be a bit of a spectacle. Uh, but, you know, if this kid plays his cards right when he comes out, he will be in high demand because some of the best white hat hackers, the so-called good guys, the ones that companies want to use to help them strengthen their defenses to build stronger cybersecurity uh, walls, so to speak, around their systems, they go to the criminals who have successfully uh, prosecuted attacks against them in the past. Who better to tell you how to protect yourself than someone who has breached those walls before? So um, bright future for this, this kid when all of this process is over. Uh, it's kind of a sad comment to say about the era that we live in, but that's the way it is. And uh, obviously, this kid's got some, you know, depending on on who he who he or she is, some pretty smart smart, uh, you know, a lot of smarts going on there. And uh, you know, if they are directed in the right way, that can lead to a fairly lucrative cyber or cybersecurity career going forward. Carmi, you're a parent. What would you do if it was the kids? Uh, all right, you're grounded. I mean, think about that. All right. There's a, yeah, yeah there, there's no way to fix that. I mean, obviously, no. I'd be mortified as a parent, but at the same time, I, I would be looking for, okay, so once this is over, how do we build the future for you, put this behind you? And clearly, there are some skills there that are in incredibly high demand. And I think wow. if you're a parent of any child and who expresses an interest in technology, Make sure that they're looking at cybersecurity as a possible as a possible career path, because uh, right now there's a massive shortage in the people who can protect us against cyber criminals. Carmi Levy with us, tech analyst. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. All right, we've certainly heard lots uh, post-pandemic, uh, even well before the pandemic, uh, but, but certainly in a post-pandemic world, how uh, people's mindsets have changed. A lot of people uh, want to go back to school and retrain, want to find different jobs, want to look uh, to other means of, of making a living. And uh, this global pandemic has changed a lot of people's direction, a lot of people's uh, perception on what they want out of life. Uh, that being said, education. Education is always the key, and obviously Mohawk College uh, heavily involved in the area with getting uh, the next generation of Ontarians educated. And there's a great story uh, coming out at Mohawk College, along with Ford Canada, uh, teaming up to ensure that automotive tech students receive valuable hands-on experience. Eastgate Ford has donated a 2020 Ford Escape and a 2020 Ford F1 uh, pickup for use by skilled trade students in the college's automotive programs. So talk more about all of this. Wayne Ostermeyer is with us, Dean of the Mar- School of Skilled Trades and Apprenticeship at Mohawk College and with us now. Wayne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. So tell us about these vehicles and and how uh, Mohawk got them. Um, We work very closely with our partners in the community and with Ford Canada and Eastgate Ford, like you mentioned. They donated a 2020 Ford Escape and 2020 Ford F-150. Um, so the donation is part of a nationwide initiative in which Port Canada uh, donated a total of 95 vehicles to the automotive technology educational institutions across the country. So um, once again, as we, Mohawk College, 
we value our partnerships within the community, and they play a key role in the success of our students. So, and how uh, how did Ford go to or come to giving uh, colleges and, and Mohawks one of them these these vehicles? Uh, they were vehicles they couldn't sell for some reason. Um, the vehicles were damaged due to flooding last year, and Eastgate Ford prepared the vehicles. So they they went through, they cleaned them up, they re- refurbished them, and they gave them to Mohawk College. Uh, we had a meeting on Monday, a session at the college where they met some of our students, and uh, they provided them to us, which provides actual hands-on experience for our, our students, uh, real-life experience, real-life exposure, working on, on vehicles that are there now with the new technology. And are these vehicles in working order then? Yeah, the vehicles are in working order for sure. Um, actually, the way we take a look at our apprenticeship programs and our motive power programs at the Mohawk College, we're very tactile. We want them to have hands-on experience working on everything uh, from older vehicles to newer vehicles as they move forward. So it's part of our program, our motor power programs. And, uh, yeah, so it's very hands-on uh, focused with regards to our lab activities in the, at Maha College. How important is it that, you know, you're talking about these vehicles being 2020, so they're obviously very current models. How important is it to get models that are this new as opposed to older models that have done their time and, and, you know, have then been retired? Well, that's a great question. With new technology comes new methods and ways of, uh, of addressing you know, deficiencies in a vehicle. If I brought my new vehicle in to a service center, um, you're taking a look at, the new technologies that's there. Years ago, uh, part of our program might have been repairing a carburetor or doing actual hands-on, mm. you know, pulling manually. Now we're doing diagnostic testing. We're doing new technology with regards to computer systems. So it is value-added for sure for our students. We have certainly heard uh, more and more about the skilled trades uh, over time, certainly well before uh, the global pandemic. Now it seems we're hearing it uh, even more. Talk about the demand and the jobs available uh, in these industries. Um, as you know, as you hear throughout the news and you hear from the government and the forecast with regards to apprenticeship and uh, the potential of not having enough skilled trades. It is there. We are Mohawk College. We are the ones that are working with the community, working with our young students, and we are creating and helping them create opportunities for themselves of working with our partners in the community. What is the reaction when the students see a donation like this come in? Uh, it must be pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, when you take a look at that opportunity to uh, meet with, uh, with members of Eastgate Ford, uh, you have to understand that they have a lot of students that previously graduated from Mohawk College, so they are given back to the community, they are given back to the college. So the students see opportunities there. They have an opportunity to mingle, opportunity to ask questions, and an opportunity to say, this is where I want to be when I'm done my uh, two or three years here at the school. You know, you bring up a very valid point, Wayne. You know, it's one thing uh, getting the vehicles and, and, and talking about the contribution to the class and the college and such, but this is a great networking scenario for them, and they can get a, really an, an inside view as to what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at the opportunity to work with Eastgate Ford and with Ford in general, is that they have their own partnership program with us as well, and it's called the Automotive Career Exploration Training Program. This is a program 
through their LMS system, working uh, in conjunction with Mohawk College, that our students get actual Ford training. So they're actually taking a look at Ford methodologies and Ford requirements for their vehicles. And so uh, the partnership is, is tremendous, uh, next to none, as you take a look at um, our students knowing what's going to be out there for them when they graduate. How much do these companies depend on and have to get their roots into schools like Mohawk in order to get a, you know, a, a good supply of students coming in? Well, I think it's critical that uh, to understand from a post-secondary perspective, all of our programs have a program advisory committee, and we work very closely with industry, and industry drives what the needs are as we move into the future. As new technology evolves, so is the need for our programming to change, and that's why we work very closely with them on an annual basis. We meet two or three times. We go over the new technologies taking place, and we make adjustments within our programs, ensuring that our students are future ready as they move forward. And what about all genders, Wayne? Because we've heard so much more about getting more females into uh, skilled trades, where whether it's motive power programs or what. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a common theme right now. If you, if you take a look at it, women in skilled trades and technology is critical. I mean, if they have the capabilities to do the work that's required. Um, we have a program that focuses on women in trades and technology. We are very, uh, you know, we are on the leading edge of introducing and working with the communities and working with, uh, you know, ladies and women in trades for sure. Wayne Ostermeyer has been with us, Dean of the Marshall School of Skilled Trades and Apprenticeship at Mohawk College. Wayne, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. All right. Thank you very much for the time. Joining us now from the Scott Radley Show coming up right after the 6 o'clock news is Scott Radley, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Good afternoon, Scott. I hope all is well. Good afternoon. All is well. How about you? I'm doing very fine, although uh, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about David Suzuki's comments uh, last weekend. Uh, was David Suzuki over the top for suggesting we could see pipelines blown up? If politicians don't ask, uh, basically what was said, and this was, um, he, he warned over the, and we all know David Suzuki and his, his prominence with the environment and the environmental movement, uh, warned over the weekend that he said this wasn't a threat, this was a warning, that if politicians don't act to reverse climate change, there could be attacks against oil and gas infrastructure. The actual quote was, we're in deep, deep doo-doo, said Suzuki Saturday, speaking at a Extinction Rebellion protest on Vancouver Island, quote, this is what we've come to. The next stage after this, they are going. there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what is going on. Is this an educated opinion or is it, um, is it, uh, is it extremism? Is it unprofessional extremism? Well, okay. So Irresponsible I extremism. I don't disagree with him. I think he's probably accurate that some environmental activists, extremists would do such a thing. But here's the thing, Scott, is we've heard now many, many times, and now not with environment, mostly with race issues, where we hear the phrase dog whistle racism or dog whistle, where it's coded yeah. words we're told that are to speaking to certain people to send a message. And, you know, you may hear this and not catch on, but those who know, know what you're saying. And that's kind of what people are saying about this is, so is David Suzuki sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, saying, hey, it's, you know, I'm not getting a threat, but hey, this could happen. And some people are going to interpret this and say, hey, there's a good idea. 
Oh, so how would that how would that change the discussion? Like, in other words, we should jump on whatever he is suggesting, not because climate change is good for everyone, including the planet, but because if we don't, there'll be violence, vigilantism. I mean, to me, that's what he's suggesting. We're hearing that for lots of things, though, not just environment now, too. I mean, we had this um, uh, verdict in the States today about the uh, the three white guys who yeah, shot yeah. and killed the black man. Yeah, and prior yeah. to that verdict, we were hearing from people outside the courtroom that this better be the right verdict. Now, clearly, it sounds like they got the right verdict. Yeah. But if it hadn't been, we had heard there was going to be bad behavior and, and, and violent. We're hearing this all over the place. This seems to be now kind of the, in a lot of places, the new normal, that you'd better do what we say is right or... And, and it's not just on one side of the political aisle. It's all over the no. place. It's, we, we now seem to have no tolerance that maybe our point of view wouldn't be followed. And so to, to, to the thing with David Suzuki, look, uh, the irony of this is if environmental activists were to blow up a pipeline, they would create an environmental disaster of epic proportions with the oil that would spill <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. But beyond that, well, that, as, if think, the, as if this is going to be something that, you know, if we blow something up, then we'll get everybody's attention. If we blow oh, something you know. up, you, oh, know, you know, I mean, come on. You will get people's attention if you blow something yeah, up. And here's, but for all the wrong reasons. Exactly. And here's the problem David Suzuki now has. And I don't know that he thought this through before he said it. Whether or not, like, I don't believe David Suzuki is a violent man. I don't, I don't believe that he was calling for violence. Um, however, if someone in the next... I don't know, period of time were to do something like this, guess who's going to be in the spotlight explaining why what he said was it? Remember when Sarah Palin had the, um, the map that had the, uh, the, the gun sites on it to say, here's the mm-hmm. areas that were, and some, and a Democratic politician got shot and they came back to Sarah Palin and said, you're responsible. You told those people to do that. Well, is this any different happened, than? Is, is this happen, any different? They're going to be be- no, it's, it's, well, it's, look, is it any different than January 6th, I guess, is the point I'm making. Donald Trump. You know, the, the, there is still lots to be learned about January 6th. I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, did Donald Trump specifically tell people? I, I haven't followed every word of it. I don't know if he said, go and do this. I know people say he did. Um, the point is, if you're in the public eye, on the left, on the right, wherever you are, if you're in the public eye, you very much, when you talk about things that are related to violence, I think have to choose your words very carefully because it takes one unbalanced wingnut to decide that what you're saying is a good idea. And you know what? All of a sudden, something really bad happens, and guess who then is going to be pointed to as the cause of that? I don't believe David Suzuki is violent, but I think he chose some really bad words. I, I don't think he is necessarily thinking responsibly, that's for sure. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. That is the wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Lisa and Ted for participating. Coming up next, it's you. You will have the last word on CHML. I got myself my own hazmat suit, so I'm ready to hug all my family members over the holiday.